have your Bibles, you can open them to Joshua chapter 5. We've been away for a couple of weeks, and where we left off in the previous chapter of Joshua, the nation of Israel was just to the east of the Jordan River. They were preparing for battle. There was a problem and that the Jordan River was at flood stage. Michael Phelps would not have been able to cross the river, let alone an entire nation. So the Lord stopped the Jordan River, and the nation went across. Our opening verse tonight describes the reaction of the Canaanite kings, and it says that their hearts melted as they saw what the Lord had done to the Jordan River. They said that they actually lost courage to fight. So worldly wisdom at this point would say this, attack immediately. They've lost heart to fight. But in our text tonight, we see that the nation paused. Why? Well, the Lord knew that they were about to be victorious. And he also knew that in their victories and in their spoils, that they would forget him. That's what we do. Moses warns of this in Deuteronomy 8 as well. And he basically says that when you establish yourself and when you increase your herds and your gold and your silver and your roots go deep and your houses go up, be careful because you'll forget me. So the Lord has Joshua stop, and he says, don't pull out a pen and a paper to write a speech. Pull out your pocket knife, and I want you to cut these people, and I want you to cut grain and share a meal with them, because they need to see and taste the promises that are theirs. And as we do this, we hope that they will remember the Lord in the days ahead. So tonight we're going to pause and we're going to read through this text with the same hope that these promises will be sealed to our hearts as well. Joshua chapter 5. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River, the Israelites, until we had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gabith Hereloth. Now this was the way he did so. All those, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of the military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up the sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua, 
Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year, they ate of the produce of Canaan. Let's pray. Our Father, we know of our own hearts. And Lord, we do acknowledge to you that when life is difficult, you are close at our side. And we look to you and we lean on you. And yet, Lord, when we do experience the blessings of the promised land, and the goodness that is ours, we forget you. And so, Lord, you give us these signs as a way to seal the truths of these signs to our soul that we might live each and every day before you and in honor of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sergeant Jacob Butler was like his father, Jim, slight in frame. On his best of days, he wouldn't tip a scale at 130 pounds, but despite his size, after graduating high school, he told his dad, I'm going into the military and I want to be on the front lines. That's exactly what he did. After several years of being in the military, he came home for a, a small reprieve before his next deployment, which would have been to Iraq. He was watching the movie, We Were Soldiers, with his father, and a particular song came on, and he looked at his father, Jim, and he said, Dad, at my funeral, I want you to play me that song. His father paused for a moment, couldn't speak, couldn't breathe for that matter. He said, why are you saying this? He said, Dad, I don't think I'm going to make it back from this deployment. A couple days later, another song was playing, and he said, Dad, that's the, that's the second song I want you to play at my, at my um, funeral. His dad looked at him, and he said, I'm going to make you a promise, Jacob. If, in fact, something happens to you in Iraq, I'm going to fly there because you're my son. I saw you come into this world, and I'm going to go to the place where you left it. Jacob smiled. He thought to himself, my dad, 46 years old, he's never, that I know of, left our small little town in Kansas. I don't think he's crossed the state line. He's definitely not taken any domestic flight anywhere, certainly not an international flight. But he just left it at that. The next day, he headed off for Iraq. A couple weeks later, in the middle of about 10 o'clock, Jim, the father, was sitting in a chair, and he could hear the crunch of a car rolling over the gravel driveway. And he looked out. The two interior lights turned on. It was two men in military uniform. And he knew the news. 
his son was dead. Had the funeral, and a couple weeks later, a, a senator came to visit Jim. They talked for hours. They talked about war. They talked about his other four sons. At the end of the conversation, Jim said, Senator, I'm, I need your help. I'm going to fly over to Iraq to the point where my son died. I made a promise to him. And the senator was as accommodating as he could. He said, this is not the time to do that. We're still in the middle of a war, and it's just not going to happen. He goes, oh, no, sir. Senator, you must be mistaken. I'm not asking you if I can go. I'm just asking if you'll help me to go because I'm headed that way. They parted ways, and the father was unrelenting. He bought uh, the needed, he took the needed shots. He bought the passport. He, everything was in motion. His friend called the U.S. government, and he said, I need you to know that James Butler is getting on a plane tomorrow and is flying to Kuwait. The response was, if he goes right now, there's a 100% chance that he's going to be killed over there. Jim said, I made a promise, and I'm going. He flew into Kuwait, and the U.S. government was forced, actually, to help him. They met him at the airport. They did a threat assessment as to how they could actually maneuver him to the point where his son was killed. And they determined through a flight, through some walking, that they could get him to that spot. And that's exactly what they did. None of the soldiers had to do it. It was volunteer. And the two dozen stood forward and said, we'll help you get to that spot. So his father maneuvered through that and got to the same spot. One of the commanding officers pulled out a GPS. He said, this is it. This is where your son passed away. As he sat there, tears rolled down his face, and he had a little boombox, and he played the two songs that he promised his son that he would play. He said, I don't want to go there when everything's at peace. I want to go there and feel it just like my son felt it. The commanding officer looked at him after the two songs were done, and he said, what now? He said, I'm ready to go home. I fulfilled my promise. He was right on the banks of the Euphrates rivers at that point. 500 miles to the west of that is the Jordan River. And it's the location of our text tonight. And in this location, there's another father, God the Father, who's made a promise to his children. And he's wanting us to see the power of promise tonight. And he knows that we're unable to fully understand the power of promises with words. And so he's giving us signs tonight of his promises in hopes that these signs will arrest your heart, that will go in the deep tissue of your soul, and that you'll leave knowing the promises of God are real and true. The first sign that we see is actually in verses 2 through 9. Before we talk about this specific promise, I want to just talk about what is a promise from a biblical perspective. What is a sign, excuse me, what is a sign from a biblical perspective? A sign is a visual evidence of God's promise. So a sign of God is a visual evidence of God's promise. Why does he give them to us? To inspire us, to strengthen us, and to confirm our faith. Uh, the most obvious example of a sign, I would say, is probably in the book of Genesis, right after the great flood. After the flood, God gives his people a promise. 
He says, I will never flood the earth again. And then what does he do? He gives them a sign. It's a visual evidence that my promise is true and real. What's the sign that we see in verses 2 through 9? Well, it's, it's circumcision. First time this idea of circumcision appears is in Genesis chapter 17. The same very word is used that God gave this nation a sign. He marked them. He set them apart. And he did so that they would know that they are his covenant people. There's a little interesting phrase there. It says they had to circumcise the people again. And really, verses 4 through 8, it's a, it's a, it reads clumsy. It's, but basically what it's saying is, why did they have to circumcise the nation again? And it explains why that was. And if you were to read through that very quickly and you were to say, what's the most prominent word that comes out of that? It would be the word all. All the people did this. All the people did that. All the people did this. It was trying to separate two different groups. There were the men who were of military age, who in Egypt, all of them were circumcised. And then it says that those same men who left Egypt of military age, they all died because of their disobedience. And then it creates another group, the next generation, then the children of those who left. And it said that all of those children were uncircumcised. So you had all the little ones that needed to be circumcised. And those are the ones that stood before Joshua. Why were they not circumcised in the first place? We're not really told. It could have been just negligence or it could have been direct disobedience. But whatever the case may be, they were circumcised on that day and it says that they were healed. Well, what did it accomplish? What was the point of it? There's this Interesting phrase in verse 9 that says that, it, that in doing so, that they, uh, the Lord rolled away the reproach from Egypt. It's the only time that phrase is used. What does it actually mean that he rolled away, that in their circumcision he rolled away the reproach of Egypt? A lot of different explanations on this one. The one that I think fits best with this context, he rolled away the mockery of Egypt. I mean, think about it. The Egypt, the strongest nation in the world at that time, and the little Israelite nation left, plundered them, and then they started to just wander around for 40 years. What's probably taking place is that they were the mockery of the surrounding nations. I mean, think of Moses. Every time just before the Lord brought about judgment, he pleaded with the Lord. He said, Lord, don't do this, and don't do it because we will then become the mockery, and you will be mocked. And so on that day, the Lord set them apart because he knew that these nations that were mocking Israel, that they were about to make a mockery of them. But before he unleashed them into battle, there had to be a truth that went deep into their soul. And that if you are to win, if you are to thrive, you need to remember that you are mine. 
that I have set you apart. What does this mean for our lives today? Location matters in the Bible. Often when things happen at the same place, Old Testament and New Testament, it's done for a reason. Gilgal, located next to the Jordan River where the circumcision took place, it's not by coincidence that when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized in the Jordan River. At the moment of his baptism, there's a voice from heaven that's heard. God the Father says, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. What baptism is, it's saying that those who are baptized have that same truth in their lives as well. That they, in fact, have been set apart. That they, in fact, are the beloved of God. And with that truth, life is altogether different. With that truth, the promises of God, they inspire us. They strengthen us. They confirm the faith. This morning, I was mindful that one of the families, at least one of the families, it was a third generation of their family being here. Don't you believe that as grandparents watch their children and their grandchildren baptized, that their faith is confirmed in deeper and deeper ways? Sinclair Ferguson tells the story of walking into a Lutheran chapel and he was at the outer edge of it as he prepared for his talk, and he could see a, a baptismal font from a distance. He recognized that there were two words written on the font, but he couldn't quite make them out. And he confesses that while I should have been listening to the message or preparing for my own message, I just kept wondering, I wonder what those two words on that font were. He had a guess, and he scribbled it down on a sheet of paper. And after the service, he walked up, and sure enough, not surprising, if you know who he is, that he had it right. Those two words were, baptizatas sum. Translated, it means I'm a baptized man. The reason those two words were there in the Lutheran church in particular, it's thought, it's known that when Martin Luther was facing tremendous pressures, when he was experiencing these fears that we just sang about of life, he would say out loud to his soul that I am a baptized man. He was saying I've been set apart. He was saying in the same way that the Lord heard the message that I am the beloved. He was reminded that in fact he was the beloved of God. Sinclair Ferguson makes an interesting statement. He goes, you know, we tend to make much of the day of baptism. We have a lot of theology about what happens at the moment of baptism. But we don't have enough thoughts on the lifelong effects of baptism and how we're to keep it before us at all times. We no longer mark our bodies with circumcision. But what this text is pressing us to do is to say, we must mark your lives with the truth of baptism and keep that before you. Second sign that we see in verse 10 through 12 is that of Passover. Now, to understand Passover, you have to 
hop back a little bit to the book of Exodus. Right around the ninth plague, the, the nation of Egypt was just in a mess. It's chaos. They were preparing for the tenth and final plague. It was to be the worst of all. You know, up to this point, what's interesting about the plagues is at, it seems as though Israel had been exempted from them. I mean, when the cattle died, Israel's cattle didn't die. When the hail came and the crops were destroyed, Israel's crops were not destroyed. When darkness came, it did not come to them. But this final plague, it was clear that this angel of death would take the firstborn of all the children. And yet in the days leading up to that, there was an exemption. The Lord told Israel to go and to find a lamb, a perfect lamb, and then to kill it. And then to take the blood and put it on the doorpost. And as the angel of death passed over, then those to whom had the blood on the doorpost, the first child would be preserved. Along with the Passover, the Lord says, in addition to that, I want you to have a meal together. So there was the eating of the lamb, there was herbs, and there was this bread that they were to have. And they said, now this meal is an important meal, and we want you to have it forever. Well, a year later at Mount Sinai, they had that meal together, and they celebrated the Passover with one another. There's no other record that this nation celebrated the Passover meal in the next 40 years. But here we have them entering into the promised land, and they have this meal together. They're not in Egypt, they're not in the wilderness, but they're in the promised land. Something interesting happens, doesn't it? Just after eating that meal, they wake up the next day, and after 40 years of receiving manna, stops it's a lesson and I believe the Lord wants us to understand what this text is saying is that there was a new page for the nation of Israel the way in which the Lord was providing for them is now going to change they're embarking on a new promised land and in that promised land there's going to be a new provision. I don't think they probably understood fully what that meant. When you flip the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's three snapshots that I just want to walk you through as I conclude that helps you understand what is the new provision that this verse was pointing to clue number one Jesus encounters John the Baptist behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world at that point John the Baptist is connecting Jesus to the Lamb which would have tied him into the Passover. Clue number two. Fascinating conversation in John chapter 6. Jesus is talking to a group and essentially they're saying, 
how do we know if we're right with God? And Jesus answers, if you believe in the one he sent. They knew enough to know that he was suggesting that he's the one that they sent. They said, well, you know, show us a sign. If you're the one that's been sent, do something special. I mean, Moses brought down bread for 40 years. And Jesus corrected them. He said, no, 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 no. That wasn't Moses that brought down bread for 40 years. That was the Lord who brought down that bread for 40 years. And this was pause. And Jesus says that I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me will never be hungry and will never be thirsty. There again. Jesus is tying himself to the Passover, first to the lamb, and then to the bread. It still wouldn't have fully understood, though. One more snapshot, Passover, the night before Jesus was to die. Jesus takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says that I that this bread is my body, and he breaks it. And he does something with it, and he shares it with those at the table. What this is indicating at that particular moment, it's a sign of a deeper reality that in this broken bread represents my broken body. And as I share it with you, in my death, you will have all the benefits that are mine. He was, in fact, sharing all the benefits of his broken body. What we see is that Jesus, that all the honor and all the benefits of his death were now given to those who eat at the table. Going back to Sergeant Jacob Butler just one more time. One of the things that really bothered Jim was his father was that they didn't know exactly how he died. As it turns out, he was on a mission to look at a, a bridge, and he was in a Humvee. There were two in front of him, and he was in behind. And a rocket-propelled grenade was shot and hit the Humvee in front of him, ejected the driver, and one other um, soldier was thrown from the vehicle. It was, it was chaos. Bullets going different directions. And Jacob directed his Humvee to drive around. And he stood, he positioned himself in between the other soldiers who were trying to get back into a position of safety. Bullets flying in different directions. And it was at that moment where Jacob was in between the enemies and his fellow soldiers that he was mortally wounded. This story actually didn't come out until months after his death and they gave him an award and I'll just read one of the sentences. Actually he saved seven soldiers that day and two wounded comrades. The sentence says that Sergeant Butler gave the ultimate sacrifice by giving his life for his country. 
but far greater than that, he died, showing that the greatest love a soldier can show by laying down his life for his friends. He died with honor. If you were to go to that small Kansas town, you would probably immediately recognize who were Jacob's parents. His dad's truck, it's an old Ford or Chevrolet, one of his massive rear uh, windows, and it has his son, K-I-A, and the date that he died. If you were to see his mom, uh, she would have a similar uh, picture on her car, and she actually bought a Kia, K-I-A, killed in action. That's why she chose that particular make of vehicle. And then if you were to go into their house, on the most prominent wall, there's a framed shadow box with all the awards and honors that he received, including the silver medal of honor. What that's a picture of is they were sharing in the honor of their son's death. The promises the glory that tied them to his life was now theirs to demonstrate to the onlooking world. You know, that's exactly what sacraments help us to do. They're, they're visual evidence of God's promises and all the benefits that are his. The benefit when God the Father says, you are my beloved those are now ours. The benefit that all that comes with being united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that when he shares this meal with us, we share every benefit that is his. And he knows we're going to forget that. So in his mercy to us, he says, you need more than John Barrett saying these things to you. You need to taste them. And in tasting them, may they be sealed to your heart. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these promises in the Old Testament and the way that ultimately Jesus fulfilled them. Father, I do pray that as we share this Lord's Supper together, that these promises that are ours in Christ be experienced in such a way that we would be different people and that we would live in a different manner. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.